Does anyone here like to travel? Okay. I thought I would get that reaction, but I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> I really like to travel. I have not done it in a while because babies, they don't sleep when we travel. But I was raised in a family that traveled quite a bit. We were not campers. We really did not do the outdoors well. So we would go to cities and historical places, and I always loved getting to experience new places and new cultures. Um, and if you know me, you know I'm kind of like, go, 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 go. My mind's always going. My mom says, I have ants in my pants. Um, <laughs> and so a big bonus of traveling for me is that it's like one of the only times where it's pretty easy for me to just tell my brain, stop, brain, come on, stop. And it listens. It's just magical. Um, I can kind of leave like my obligations at home, check out, and just soak up wherever it is I am. And it's, it's great. Um, but I remember one trip... I was in college, and I went down to Florida with my sister Rachel and two of our best friends, and we had so much fun. We uh, went hiking, and we ate lots of just really yummy food. Um, we spent a lot of time at the beach. We did get attacked by seagulls. Um, <laughs> we were laying out, and they just swooped down, landed on my friend, picked up her cell phone, flew away with it, dropped it like 20 feet on the sand and it was fine. It was, it was a Florida miracle. And so <laughs> it was a really good trip. Um, and honestly, I really did a good job of checking out of my responsibilities at home. I wasn't thinking about school. I wasn't thinking about work. I wasn't thinking about my responsibilities at church. Um, and so you'd think that it would have been really easy for me to just fully immerse myself in all that Florida had to offer. Um, and it would have been had it not been for one person, and that is Scott. Um, if you guys don't know, Scott is my husband, but at the time he was my boyfriend, and we had been dating for about three and a half years. We were madly in love, um, <laughs> and we were waiting for the day when we could finally get married. <laughs> um, and I, it just did not matter what we were doing in Florida. Like, we went snorkeling, we went shopping, we stayed up late and watched movies, and like in the back of my mind the whole time, I was thinking, when can I get away and like call Scott? Like, when can I sneak away and hear about his Tuesday working at Sam's Club, moving watermelons? Like, <laughs> he had nothing exciting to share with me. Um, <laughs> the beach was, like, right in front of me. The ocean, it was incredible. And honestly, it, it's so silly, but I was thinking about, like, when can I talk to Scott? Um, and I think, it's not that I wasn't having fun, because I was, but I just think there's certain people in our lives whose presence is just so wonderful to us that it really is better than just about anything else the world has to offer. Like talking to Scott about his Tuesday at Sam's Club was more enticing to me than the beach and the ocean. Um, and it, I mean, it's true. There's people in life who their presence really overshadows any other human experience. It, it holds power over us. And if that's true about a person, if that's true about 20-year-old Scott wearing his blue Sam's Club vest, um, <laughs> then how much more true is that of God? God's presence is so wonderful and so powerful. And that's what we're going to talk about today in Exodus 33. You can turn there if you've got your Bible with you, but it should be on the screen. We are going to read about a group of people called the Israelites. 
And they got so much joy out of the presence of God that we'll see today that living without his presence simply was not an option. Anything else the world had to offer just seemed like lack. And so we'll go ahead, we'll dive in. We're here in Exodus 33. The Israelites, God's people, have been wandering around in the desert, and God has just given them his law. And the Israelites did something really, really dumb, which we will talk about in a minute. And God was rightfully really, really angry. And that's where we find ourselves here. God is meeting with Moses, and here's what he says. Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. So to fully understand what's going on here, we have to actually travel back in time 600 years to a guy named Abram. You might know him better by the name Abraham. And Abram was a man who loved God. He loved God, but he was very old and he was childless in a society that highly, highly valued the family line. So when he was 75 years old, God made Abram a promise. He told him that he would give him descendants that were more numerous than the stars in the sky. Keep in mind, he's 75 years old. He's got no kids, but God promises his descendants would be more numerous than the stars of the sky. And he would give those descendants a land to call their own, a special promised land that God himself would give them. And the Israelites in Exodus held so tightly to this promise because as God made this promise to Abram, he also said this, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And this is how we find the Israelites in Exodus. They have been enslaved by the nation of Egypt, living there as foreigners for 400 years. This beautiful promise of God's providence of raising up a people and giving them a land is accompanied by this dismal foretelling of the oppression of the very same people. And so for 400 years, the Israelites are oppressed by the nation of Egypt, but God did not forget his promise to them. He raised up a man named Moses and called him. Moses was an Israelite, one of God's people, but he was raised by Egyptian royalty. And so God sent him to Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. But did Pharaoh listen? No, Pharaoh did not listen, so God sent plagues. He sent frogs and flies and hail and boils and darkness and eventually death until finally Pharaoh relented. He said, you can go. And so that's what God's people did. After 400 years, they left Egypt, but not as slaves because as God has pro had promised 600 years before, they left Egypt with great possessions. The Bible says, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they, 
or they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. So one minute the Israelites are living as slaves, and the next minute they are leaving Egypt after 400 years as conquerors because God remembered his promise. And so they left, and what happened? Pharaoh changed his mind, right? And he sent his army chasing after the Israelites, trapping them between the army and the Red Sea. And so God parted the sea, the Israelites Israelites crossed on dry land. God closed the sea, killing Pharaoh's army and thus bringing judgment on the nation that had enslaved his people. And in doing this, God fulfilled his 600-year-old promise, part of that 600-year-old promise. And so God's people, the Israelites, knew what was coming next. They'd held on to hope for 600 years that God was going to bring them to a land to call their own. And that's what was happening right before their eyes. You can imagine like the eagerness and the excitement and the anticipation as they waited for God's promise to be fulfilled. And here in Exodus 33, we see that this is offered to them. God says, go. After 600 years of waiting, he says, go, you can settle in the promised land. And that's not all that God says. He actually adds more to that promise. He says, I'll send an angel before you to drive out all the enemies who are residing in that land. Um, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, lots of ites, all gone. <laughs> no battles, no casualties, political peace. That is what God is offering his people. But he doesn't stop there. He also says the land will flow with milk and honey. They will have good food to eat. Their physical needs will be provided for. God is telling his people, you can have your homeland that you have been waiting for, and you can have it with political peace and prosperity. And you can have it right now. Seems like a no-brainer, right? But there was a catch because God goes on, and here's what he says but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Here, God says, Israel, you can have everything that you want. You can have everything that you have been waiting for for 600 years, all of your wildest dreams fulfilled and more. I'll even give you more. You can have it, it's yours but you can't have me. And the Israelites respond in a way that seems somewhat odd considering the context. Their response should make us pause. The Bible says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And the reason this response is kind of odd is because if you've been reading Exodus up to this point, you will have noticed two things. First thing is that the Israelites did not want to be in that desert. They wanted to be somewhere else. The Bible says so many times that they had been grumbling, they had been complaining. They actually said, God, we wish we would have just died as slaves in Egypt. That would have been better than where you have us now. They wanted consistency. They wanted comfort. They wanted the security that comes with the mundane. They wanted to be settled. Egypt, promised land, they didn't really care. It, they just didn't want to be where God had them in that moment. And the second thing is, remember I said that Israel did a dumb thing and God was really mad. 
Well, this is what they did. Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God and God was giving him his law, really a beautiful thing that God was doing. And it was taking a little bit longer than the Israelites liked. So they got a little impatient and they thought, you know, the best course of action we think would be to melt all of our jewelry down, (laughs) make a shiny cow and worship that instead of God. And so that's what they did. They made for themselves an idol and they worshiped that idol and gave that idol credit for everything God had done. They had just seen God part a sea. They had just seen God provide water in the middle of a dry desert. They had just seen him day after day make bread rain down from heaven. And yet they made this idol They'd just seen it come out of the fire. And they said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. They had completely turned their backs on God. Um, did any of you guys run away from home as a little kid? Like, you, you like pack up your tiny suitcase and you walk to the end of the block and then you kind of sit there because you don't really know where else you can go. <laughs> um, you know, like as a kid, sometimes kids say stuff like, you're not my mom anymore. I'm gonna get a new mom. And I kind of feel like that's what Israel's doing. Like, you know that's your mom. You're not gonna go get a new mom. They knew that God was the one who parted the sea. And yet they're mad at him. They don't like what he's doing. And so they make themselves a new God and worship an idol. And based on their behavior, you'd think that the Israelites would be glad to be rid of God. Like up till this point, it was so clear. They wanted God's blessings and they did not want God himself. But here we see a drastic change at the mention of settling into a peaceful, prosperous land without God. The people mourn. They mourn. Mourning is not a feeling or an emotion. It's not like they felt kind of sad. They weren't like bummed out, like, oh, this sucks. But then like go on with their lives. Mourning is a verb. It's something you do and it is all consuming. When you mourn, you stop everything else and you take time to intentionally grieve a loss. And that's what we see God's people doing. This news was disastrous to them. All of their desires fulfilled and more, but God's presence would not be with them. And the reason this news was so disastrous is because the Israelites had experienced firsthand the presence and the power of God. So they knew that a life of ease and wealth and autonomy and abundance was not worth living apart from God because abundance apart from God is actually lack. And so Moses goes back to God on behalf of the Israelites and here's what he says. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? There is a false gospel called the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel teaches that if you just have enough faith, you will be healed from any and every disease. You will get whatever material possession you ask of God and you will live a life free of suffering. 
Adherents of this false gospel believe that it is the physical and financial blessings of God that make us distinct. But here we see Moses refute this, and he says that it is actually the presence of God that makes us distinct. Our stuff, our money, our wealth, that does not make us distinct. Political peace, ease, prosperity, that does not make us distinct because other nations have wealth and other nations exist as political superpowers. It is only by the presence of God that we are different from the world. And Moses says, Lord, the ease, the prosperity, the the political peace, the homeland, the abundance, God, we forfeit all of it for the sake of being with you. You can keep those things, God. We just want you. Abundance apart from God is not abundance at all. And so the Lord replies to Moses and he says, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. Have any of you had someone you love have a really close call, like come really close to death? Um, If you have, you've probably experienced this feeling of like, I will never let you go. Um, For me, it was my sister, Audrey. Several years ago, a lot of you know, she fell out of a tree and she broke her neck. And I got the call and I was in the spring semester at college and I dropped everything. I stopped going to school. I didn't do my homework. I stopped going to work. I moved into her hospital room and I stayed with her because I had just almost lost my sister. The doctors didn't think she should have survived. And it was just like, Audrey, I am not letting you go. I probably drove her crazy, but I just had to keep her close. And I think that's what Moses is experiencing right here. He's just had this close call. He's just been presented with this reality of life without God's presence. And now that he knows that God's not going anywhere, he's like, God, I want to be in your presence. I want to stay with you. I want all of it. Show me your glory. And so God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face. For no man shall see my face and live. So God responds by pretty much saying, look, man, you don't know what you're asking. I am so good and I am so glorious that if you even like catch a glimpse of the side of my cheek, it would utterly consume you. So no, sorry, Moses. You cannot see my face. You cannot see all my glory, but I will let you behold my goodness and I will tell you my name. So God's going to reveal some of who he is to Moses and he explains how it will happen. He says, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. In other words, 
you can't handle my face, Moses, but I'll let you see my back. I'll stick you in a cave, (laughs) and you can see my backside, and that's it. (laughs) So (laughs) Moses rose early. This is back to the Bible, sorry. (laughs) Moses rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, there's that word, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. He worshiped. It was the only possible response. He had just seen God, seen his back, um, and he had heard God reveal himself, reveal his character. And there is nothing Moses could have done but just bow down, face in the dirt, and worship. God here reveals that he is perfectly just, that he hates evil, but he at the same time is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is why they mourned. This is why when God promised to fulfill the Israelites' wildest dreams and then some, they said, no, we want none of it without you. There is no such thing as abundance apart from God. It is a lie. A billion dollars is not abundance. A million followers on Instagram is not abundance. And we know this. You just have to stand in line at the grocery store and look at a magazine. And we see that every week there's a new celebrity, a new billionaire who has committed suicide or checked into rehab or has announced they're getting divorced. It's expected. They have it all according to the world. But if a famous person makes it to 40 and they're sober and happily married... We're like, oh my gosh, they beat the odds. They have like kind of a normal life. Look at them, well done. Like it is expected that the people who have it all are going to crash. And it's because true abundance can only be found in the presence of God. Anything else is lack. So preparing to teach today about God's abundance, it just caused me to reflect on my own story. And I have to confess, when I read Exodus, usually I sit there and I'm like, oh my gosh, these guys are morons. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Like God just parted a sea and they're complaining because they're thirsty. Are they missing it? Like I just sit there, I think, gosh, these Israelites, I would never do that. (laughs) Um, But this time... God was so good and so convicting and showed me just how similar to the Israelites I am. 
Um, many of you guys know my story. It's been shared a lot um, that during my first pregnancy with my daughter, Rosalie, we were told she would be born with special needs. And then a week after she was born, we found out that that was wrong and she did not have special needs. I've shared that stuff. I've shared the happy stuff, the answered prayers, how God was faithful, which he was. Um, but I haven't shared like the hard moments. And that first pregnancy that should have been like the most joyful time was actually my own desert that I found myself wandering through. And just like the Israelites, I did not want to be there. I did not want to be in that desert. And I teetered back and forth between trusting God and grumbling, between remembering God's goodness and asking, God, why did you bring me here? I remember moments where I felt so confident in God's purpose in giving us a daughter with special needs. And then I also remember how every time I'd catch a glimpse of another pregnant belly, and there were so many at Jubilee at the time. <laughs> it was baby boom of 2016 at Jubilee Kirkwood. And I remember every time I'd catch a glimpse of another belly, I would think, God, this is so unfair. There were so many moments when I grumbled and I felt angry at God for bringing me to this place. I had wanted to be a mother forever. I'd been waiting my whole life, but I didn't want to be a mother this way. And I remember um, specifically, I was working um, as a teacher at a Christian school and I had just found out about Rosalie and had told my bosses. And one of my bosses came up to me when I was making copies and he had just such a good heart and he said, you know, my daughter was born with a heart defect and we didn't know and she had to have open heart surgery and it was so scary. And I just know what it feels like to get hard news about the health of your baby. And so I smiled and I nodded and I said, thank you. And then I walked to my classroom and I was mad <laughs> and I cried angry tears because you can fix a heart, but you can't fix DNA. And I asked God why he didn't give me something I could fix. And I grumbled because in that moment, my circumstance felt so much bigger than the goodness of God. What God had given me did not feel like abundance. It felt like I was getting less than everyone else. And it felt like I didn't get what I deserved. I wanted God's blessings, but I wanted them in my way on my terms. Sounds familiar, right? <laughs> um, but when I was reminded of the goodness of God, my circumstance seemed to fade to the background. I was pregnant with Rosalie, like I said, in 2016. And I think in the Christian world, we just need to come to an agreement and declare 2016 as the year of good, good father. <laughs> Do you guys know that song? Okay, I figured so. It was like inescapable in 2016. <laughs> I turn on the radio, good, good father. I turn on Pandora, good, good father. Go to YouTube, what was my top suggestion? Good, good father. <laughs> I was teaching at a Christian school, like I said, and every Friday we had chapel. And what song did we sing almost every Friday? Good, good father. <laughs> and it did not matter what... I was going through, it did not matter how angry I was. It did not matter how hurt I felt. When I sang, good, good father, my heart would just turn to putty. 
Um, when I meditated on and proclaimed the character of God, you're a good, good father. It's who you are, and I am loved by you. In the midst of that uncertain time, in his presence, I experienced abundant peace, abundant joy, abundant love, abundant faithfulness. When I thought on the goodness of God, I remembered that abundance was not found in having a perfect kid, and abundance was not found in having a picture-perfect family. All of my dreams realized apart from God were worth nothing. But in his presence, no matter my circumstance, I could have abundant life because he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This story in Exodus 33 begs the question, where are you searching for abundance? We're all looking for it somewhere. I was looking for it in motherhood. What is it for you? Is it your dream job, your dream home, your dream body, dream family, dream bank account, dream man? Or is it in the presence of God? When we, like the Israelites, walk through a season of dryness or a season of promises not yet fulfilled, it is easy to feel like, God, if you just gave me fill in the blank, then I would have joy. For me, it was, God, if you just give me a typical kid, then I will praise you. For the Israelites, God, if you just give us our homeland, then we will trust you. And I think when we find ourselves in that place, there's a few things we can do. First thing is to shift our focus from circumstance to savior. Abundant life is not dependent on whether or not the things around us are going well. Psalm 37 said, the Lord knows the days of the blameless. In the days of famine, they have abundance. In the days of famine, they have abundance. In the midst of hard times, we have abundance because we are known and loved by God. And in him, we have abundant life. So we must choose to look to God knowing that he is bigger and better than whatever we are going through. The second thing is trade in our grumbling for gratitude. I know it's cheesy. Just go with me. <laughs> Gratitude's all the rage right now, right? You can walk into Marshall's and get yourself a gratitude journal. And you go on Instagram and you'll see hashtag grateful. I've used that hashtag. <laughs> um, but there's something to this. First Thessalonians 5 says both rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Giving thanks or gratitude is really just thinking about how God has been faithful in both the big things and the little things. And when our focus turns to God's faithfulness, joy rather than grumbling is the natural result. And the last thing is to remember God's goodness. God's goodness is so, so good, guys. It is more than we can handle. Because in the rest of this story, Moses comes down from the mountain having seen God's backside and his face is shining so brightly that no one can look at him. It hurts. So Moses has to put a veil over his face. 
the remnants of the reflection of the backside of God's goodness is more goodness than we can handle. I'll say it again. The remnants of the reflection of the backside of God's goodness is more goodness than we can handle. I know that when I was pregnant with Rosalie, God did not feel good most of the time. But now three and a half years later, I can look back and I see how unbelievably good he was throughout that whole season. Bible says he's gonna use all things for our good and he did. He used this time, this most painful season in my life to change my heart. I feel like he, I have a completely different heart by his grace to give me new purpose in him and to call my family to special needs adoption. And the road ahead is not what Scott and I had always hoped for. It is not our version of our wildest dreams, but it is better. And the thing that caused us so much disappointment is now the thing that is bringing us the most joy because that's what God does. That's how good he is. He gives us himself. He gives us his presence. And that is where true abundance is. So you guys remember my story at the beginning, how I just longed for Scott's presence in Florida. I still do, guys. I got home, or not home. I got to my room last night, and first thing I did was text him. I wanted to know, how were your five Ellie-free hours? <laughs> it hadn't been that long. <laughs> but if I stopped spending time with Scott, if I stopped talking to him, if I stopped being with him, I would probably stop longing for him because I would forget what was so good about his presence to begin with. And this is true, I think, about God as well. If we stop encountering him, if we stop talking with him, being with him, spending time with him, if we stop entering into his presence, we can forget about how good he is. We can forget about how faithful he's been, about all the good things he's done for us. And maybe you find yourself in that place right now. I know I'd found myself in that place where I'd forgotten the goodness of God. Well, there's good news because God promises he is always with us. And he promises where two or more are gathered in his name, he is there. And look next to you. There's way more than two of us here. <laughs> so he is here with us. His presence is right here, and we have an opportunity the rest of this weekend to encounter him. So let's partake in the fullness of joy that he promises us in his presence. Let us sit together in his abundant love and peace and joy and faithfulness together because he is waiting for us.